0: Well, it's good to be back uh, in the pulpit this morning. Those of you who were here last week know that uh, I was out of town. I want to publicly thank Pastor Voles for his uh, ministry. Uh, In my absence, I am truly thankful for him and his partnership here at Ascension. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to grab it and turn with me uh, to the book of Psalms once again, Psalm one hundred. And 33. Again, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some Bibles available as well as you can follow along in the insert found in your bulletin. For those of you who are visiting this morning, uh, again, welcome. It's great to have you. We're glad that you're here. And uh, we hope that you'll linger for a bit after the service around coffee so we can get to know you. But for those of you who have Our visiting, we have been this summer here at Ascension, we've been exploring some of the songs of David. David's a familiar Bible character, a shepherd boy who grew to be king, a man after God's own heart, great king of Israel, the one in whom the Messiah came in his line. And out of the 150 psalms that we have in what is known as the Psalter, that's often what we call the book of psalms, of the 150 psalms that we have, 73 of them have David's name on them, making David easily the most common author of these poems, these, these prayers, these songs. And over the last week, I've wanted to give us a varied picture of the emotions and the experiences that David expresses. And so we've looked at psalms of revelation, of forgiveness, of, of longing, and of desperation. And it's been my hope that for those of you who have been here, that in some small way that David's cries have given voice to your own heart as you find yourself in situations similar I thought maybe, before I went out of town, that we were done with this series, uh, but we're not. I love this series, and I just can't get away from it, and so maybe this week will be the last week, maybe not, Uh, but today we're going to turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 uh, is a very short psalm, but before you hear it, I want to set up a little bit of the context. Uh, of Psalm 133. Psalm 133 fits into a grouping of psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, all the psalms in between, those make up the Psalms of Ascent. Now, what are the Psalms of Ascent? Well, three times The ancient people of God, the Jews, the ancient Jews, would travel from their villages and towns throughout the Promised Land, they would travel to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, to the place of God's presence to them. And so in early April, at the conclusion of the barley harvest, they would come from all around to celebrate the Passover. And then in late May, they'd return after the end of the wheat harvest in order to remember God's provision of the promised land to them. And then finally, in October, during the time of the grape and olive pressing, God's people would return once again for one of the most significant days of their year, and that was the Day of Atonement, where the priests would go before the Lord and offer Sacrifice for the atonement, for the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. And so there was a lot of traveling going on by God's people, the ancient Jews. And so these songs, these songs of ascent, are what we would call journeying songs. They are pilgrim songs, as God's people would travel from village and town, ascending ascending to the hill of Jerusalem, they would sing these songs together to remind themselves of God's truth, to remind themselves of God's promise, much like we do every Lord's Day morning. We join our voices in praise. Now I know this morning that we aren't Jewish, and we're not literally walking to a place this morning, but we are pilgrims, and we are on a journey together. And therefore, this psalm, this song is our song. And so listen as I read, Psalm 133, very short. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I know that I don't have to inform you of this fact, of this reality, but I bring it up to your attention once again. We live, brothers and sisters, in a fractured, divided world, In the present reality of Sin in our own hearts and in the systems and structures of our world have destroyed not only the peace that we are supposed to have with our Creator, but they have destroyed any lasting peace that we can experience with one another. Our history is littered with examples of division and the fracturing of peoples. Our own history... We don't think about this much in the Northwest, but they think about it in Georgia, let me tell you. North versus South. German versus Jew. If you know anything about world history, Hutu versus Tutsi. Israeli versus Palestinian, white versus black, Democrat versus Republican, and we could go on and on. Ethnic division runs deep. Political ideology is a passionate, held belief. Is there a place in our world, in a broken society, where unity and community and peace can really happen? Where differences don't necessarily dissolve, but they do fade in the background in light of that which unites. Well, I think all of you in this room know where I'm going with this. There is such a place, and it's here. It is us. It is the church. You see, Psalm 133, this song of David, reminds us of the counter-cultural, supernatural phenomenon that is the church of Jesus Christ. Psalm 133 is a call to unity. It's a call to life together. It's a call to community. And as we walk through these first, these These short three verses, you might think, three points, three verses, three points, go for it, Nate. Oh no, four points. Four points in a three-verse psalm. Four truths that I want to guide us this morning. And the first one is this. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the first truth is this. We are called to true biblical community. We in this room are called to true... Biblical community. It's the basic implication of verse 1. And as I said, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now when we hear the word brothers, and by extension sisters, we immediately think, and rightly so, we think of family relationships. I have a sister, you have a brother. And it's true, this song would have originally been sung by families who were biologically connected. And then beyond that, by those who were not only connected by family, but were connected ethnically as the Jewish nation, and people of God. But brothers and sisters, this word, as it comes to us this morning, preserved for generations, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, and applied to each and every heart this morning by the Holy Spirit, it speaks to more than families. It speaks to more than biological connections. It speaks to the present people of God. And it speaks to the manifestation of the people of God in the world. It speaks to you. It speaks to the church. Common worshipers under one God. To rephrase verse one, God reminds us this morning of the benefits when He says, How good, the benefits and the beauty, how pleasant. Of living together, dwelling in community as one, unity. Our fellowship, our community is a reality intended to bring glory to his name and good to our lives, good to our souls. That's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about true biblical community. Folks, this is exactly what Jesus wants from us. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for for us. In John chapter 17, let me read you just a bit. He says to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and loves them, even as you loved me. We're called to true biblical community. That's the first truth. But there's a second truth. A second truth that I want you to think about, and it brings us to the first image that David gives us. David gives, paints pictures for us in these songs. And this is one of the things I love about the Psalter. The second truth is this. True biblical community sets us apart. True biblical community sets us apart. See, after emphatically stating the benefits of and calling us to community in verse 1, David gives us two pictures. Two pictures through two separate similes. You know what a simile is, kids? It's when you say, like. This is like something. That's exactly what David does. And the first simile is theological. And the second simile is geographic. Verse 2, it is like, that is, community, true biblical community is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And you're you're picturing that, and you kids are thinking about that, and you're like, yuck, that doesn't look good, that doesn't sound good. I've had stuff poured on my head. It's not all that comfortable. What is David saying here? Well, to our modern minds, it is confusing. But, oh, this is so good. This is such a beautiful picture that David is giving us. What David is doing is he's reminding God's people through this song. He's reminding them of Exodus 30. He's reminding them of that passage that we read. The recipe for the oil. And the action of the oil. You see, this was a beautiful ceremony of the Old Testament that God set in place to vividly, beautifully, powerfully, in every way, visually and with your nose, to show that these things and this individual was set apart. See, the priest, Aaron, they represented God's people. God's blessing came through them. And so God ceremonially set them apart before the people through the anointing of oil. And we heard about some of the ingredients. This was an intensely fragrant and precious oil. Something like four koi, excuse me, four quarts of olive oil. That's as much oil as you put in your car, right? Four quarts of olive oil mixed with cinnamon, mixed with sugar. And it formed this this syrupy, aromatic liquid that would then be poured all over Aaron's head and would just slowly ooze down his face, onto his robe, into his robe. We don't have this kind of picture anymore. We can only imagine it and, and think about it. We don't have a high priest anymore. Or do we? Yes, we do. We don't need this ceremony anymore. We don't need the Aaronic priesthood anymore because we have Jesus. The one whom the book of Hebrews reminds us is the great high priest faithful in the house of God. So here we have this picture. We have this priesthood, but we have uh, the great high priest. So how does God's word come to us through this picture? Let me read a couple passages, one in the old and one in the new. The Lord says to his people in Exodus 19, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says to the New Testament church directly, You are a chosen nation, a royal nation priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So yes, we don't need Aaron and his mediation. We don't need the priesthood. We have Jesus. And in having Jesus, that once for all final priest, what does that give to us as the church? Well, as we digest Psalm 133, what that gives to us as the church is we are, in a sense, a priesthood to one another. True biblical community sets us apart, consecrates us, just as Aaron was set apart in the temple of the Lord. I want to say more on this Point practically at the end as we look at some takeaways. But let me just read you a quote from Eugene Peterson. He's an author. He says, We are set apart, speaking to the church, we are set apart for service to one another. We mediate to one another the mysteries of God. We represent to one another the address of God. We are priests who speak God's Word and share Christ's sacrifice. True biblical community sets us apart as priests to one another. Well, there's another image, though, that comes out of that picture of Aaron and the syrupy, smelly, Liquid running down him. It's the scent. It's the aroma. You see, as the fragrance of that oil would flood, literally flood the temple of God with a sweet smell, Aaron has been set apart. God's blessings will come through Him. I can smell it. Even as that happened, so the aroma of Christ from the church is designed to fill the earth. To fill this place. And to fill our communities. The world needs community. The world needs what we find here whether it acknowledges it or not. A lot has been written on this subject. One writer, Charles Reich, wrote, Modern living has obliterated place, locality, and neighborhood, and given us the anonymous separateness of our existence. By and large, that's the reality of our world. Another author says our churches are one of the last bastions of community. And yet they, they don't escape individualism. Many of us drive to church, we listen to the sermon, we say hello to our circle of friends, and then we return home without ever really experiencing community. But Psalm 133 reminds us that true biblical community sets us apart as priests to one another and as an aroma to the world. And that brings us to the second image and the third truth that I want us to look at. And it's this. True biblical community brings life. True biblical community brings life. Anna and I last weekend were in Southern California for just a couple days to attend a get-together from some dear friends from the past. And I commented to Anna as we were driving around, I commented to her about the the brownness, the dryness of Southern California and how I just didn't, I just don't miss it. And then we came back and it rained this week. And I was so glad for just a moment to, to see the rain return because I'm so ready for the green to return. And David in this second image in Psalm 133 in verse 2, that's the picture that he wants to paint for us. Through the biblical, the beauty of biblical community and unity. Many of us when we think about Israel, we think about desert. And it's true, Israel and Palestine, those areas are high desert. So it may be even a surprise to you that there would be a mountain that could create dew, as verse 2 says. But there is. Mount Hermon, to the northern part of the promised land. Today, the peak of Hermon, which is really a, a series of peaks, straddles the borders of Lebanon and Syria And it's a peak that rises over 9,000 feet, and because of its height, the surrounding area, the surrounding foothills that could be seen from a distance would get blanketed each morning with a heavy dew, a heavy dew that would bring nourishment, that would bring life, that would take away the brownness of the arid desert and bring green, lush life. Jerusalem, the city itself that God's people are ascending to, it's dry. It's arid. Virtually has no precipitation between the months of May and October. And so what David is doing here is he's saying, that dew that brings life and nourishment and growth and greenness and beauty, as God's people come to Jerusalem, they bring that. Not literally, not in rain or in dew upon the ground, but as God's people, they bring that life. I don't know how many of you read the, uh, the Quieting Our Hearts section that you find in your bulletin each Lord's Day, but this morning's Quieting Our Hearts for Worship section is worth... Looking at, again, you can grab it if you have it. It's a quote from Eugene Peterson, again, a pastor, theologian, and he writes, We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. For God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are so personal, true, true. Intimate, yes. But private, no. We are in a family in Christ. And when we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. No Christian is an only child. You're not alone. You weren't made to be alone. You were made for community. And if you're in Christ here this morning, you were made for this community. And it's community not just for Christians. You see, community is craved by humans, by all those who are made in the image of God. Think about this. God has never been alone. Right, That's what Jesus was saying in John 17. God has never been alone for all eternity. He has dwelt in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as you were created, as you were breathed into existence, you have that built into you. That need for others, reflective of the Godhead, God invites you into that fellowship. Everything in our world is pushing us apart when what we really need and at our core, what we want, and I'm thinking of your neighbors, your coworkers, what they really want is this it's community. I picked up an interesting book recently. And it's entitled, Alone Together. And the subtitle is, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. Not written by a Christian, but interesting sociological insights and examination of our modern culture. And in in this book, the author writes, Research portrays Americans as increasingly insecure, isolated, and lonely we brag about how many friends we have friended on Facebook, yet Americans say they have fewer friends than ever before. When asked in whom they can confide and to whom they turn to in an emergency, more and more say that their only resource is the family. It's the state of our world. The family is, is good, and the Bible exalts family and thinks highly of family but as you think about your neighbors as you think about your coworkers as you think about our modern world we live in a world with fractured and dysfunctional families families that are spread all over not just the nation but the world there's a void and there's a void that the church has the opportunity to step in and fill and bring life. The world tries to step in to a degree. On the plane going to San Diego, I overheard as we were boarding the plane this, this guy, he had a Seahawks hat on. He was, man, he was a 12, let me tell you. And he recognized... He reco- Somehow he determined that the guy that was waiting next to him as we were boarding the plane was from St. Louis. And boy, did they get into a conversation about the Rams and the Seahawks last year. And you would have thought those guys would have known each other for 12 years, the way they were talking, the way they were palling. And the world tries. We we have all these, I'm not saying it's bad to be a Seahawks fan, by the way. But the world has all these ways to build community. Rotary, veterans organizations, Harley enthusiasts, and yes, Seahawk fans. But as good as those communities are, as good as that camaraderie is, it doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring life. The community of the church transcends... Interest. It transcends experience. And as the community of the church does that, then it reveals the supernatural power of God and what the gospel alone can do. The gospel unites the ununitable. And think about this. True biblical community exists only when the Lord is removed and there's nothing else. If it were not for the gospel, why else would you be in each other's lives? But because of the gospel, your lives are indispensable to one another. Now I'm not saying there's no commonality in this room. We got a lot of Seahawk fans who would unite around the Seahawks. We got other people who would unite around life experience. But true biblical community, powered by the gospel, says that not everyone in this room, if you take away the Seahawks, if you take away the fact that I'm a 40 something young dad, would I be hanging out with you guys? Probably not. But because of the gospel, I am, and I need you, and you need each other. And true biblical community brings life. Jesus said that the world would know Him by our love for one another. And true biblical community reveals that. Well, one final truth for us this morning. True biblical community flows from grace. True biblical community flows from grace. It's a short psalm, three verses, but did you notice what phrase is repeated over and over again? Running down. Running down. And even in verse 3, though it's translated as falls on, it's the same Hebrew word, yarad. The same Hebrew word in all three verses. It's like oil running down. It's like oil running down. It's like dew running down. The point is that it's something that descends upon us. True biblical unity descends upon us. It's not something that we can purely manufacture. True biblical community must begin with hearts that have been redeemed. And we don't do that. That's grace. True biblical community flows from hearts that have been shown grace and want to give grace. And that doesn't just happen. It flows from the gospel. From the undeserved kindness that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. And even then, our own sin, our own self-centeredness so often stands in the way. And so true biblical community flows by grace. So the first application for us is we've got to pray for this. It doesn't just happen. Do you notice the kind of prayers that we prayed this morning, even in the prayer of invocation? Holy Spirit, pour out on us. Same picture. If we don't have that pouring, we're not going to live in community. We're not going to show the world that, hey, we're not just all Seahawk fans in this room. We're a bunch of crazy, messed up people, but we love one another more than family. Because we are family. But then, as we pray for this, I think there also is a striving. Recognizing that it flows from grace. Recognizing that it's God's Spirit alone that can manufacture this. We need to strive for it. Get in God's way, so to speak. And so, how do we do that? Well, community groups. Is this a shameless plug for community groups? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, community groups are away. Absolutely, they're away. Are they important? Yes, they're important. We wouldn't do them if they're not. We're going to be thinking more about that in the coming weeks. But this is not just a community group sermon, as much as I want you to think about community groups. It's not just a schedule change, this is a lifestyle change. Do you know others, and are you known by them? Are you part of one another's lives? I know that you're busy, but hear me when I say this. Busyness does not equal godliness. If you're too busy for one another, maybe you should think about the priority of your schedule. I know that's harsh. I know that doesn't take into consideration everyone's life circumstances. We go through seasons that are more difficult than others. But sometimes I think we hide behind busyness as if that's godly. Jesus wasn't a busy person. He lived a very unhurried life. And he did exactly what needed to be done. I want to close Psalm 133 and these truths with six practical ministries from a book that I suspect many of you have read. It's a book called Life Together, written by a German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was put to death by the Nazis right before uh, Germany was liberated But he wrote a book about Christian community, about life together. And I want to read a few of his takeaways. He has a whole chapter on the ministry of community. And I want to give you six, six practical things that you can strive for by grace to cultivate true biblical community. The first one is this. And these are his categories. These are his words the ministry of holding one's tongue the ministry of holding one's tongue he writes this is a quote a decisive rule of every christian fellowship is that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him oh i love that if you're thinking it probably shouldn't say it james 4:11 do not speak evil against one another brothers The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And this is so important in true biblical community. And I've talked about it before, I know. But it's not yet a dead horse. I can continue to beat it. We need to strive to give good reports. The goal of giving good reports, recognizing that our tongues are deadly weapons. We must guard against them. The ministry of holding one's tongue. That's the first one. Secondly, the ministry of meekness. Jesus humbled himself. He left his exalted position to serve. In Romans 12, 3, says, For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you must not think more highly of himself than he ought. The ministry of meekness. Number three, according to Bonhoeffer, The ministry of listening, of listening. Let me read this quote. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. We forget that listening can can be a greater service than speaking. We should listen with the ears of God that we might be able to speak the words of God. Listening. Number four, the ministry of helpfulness. Bonhoeffer just talks about, hey, this is just like nitty gritty. Do you need some help? Not even, you're not even in a catastrophe. You're not even in a crisis. Can I help you? He says, we must allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. And what he means when he says that is we must allow For the sake of true biblical community, others to interrupt us. Number five, the ministry of bearing. It is only when he is a burden that another is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. Kind of had to think about that quote. I'll read it again. It is only when he is a burden that another is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. In other words, we're not serving, we're not loving in order to get something out of each other. But because you're my brother, you're my sister, not because you're going to pay me back. The ministry of bearing. And then the last one, the ministry of proclaiming. And really you can't proclaim unless all these other things have taken place. You don't have a platform to proclaim unless these other things have happened. So Bonhoeffer says, where Christians live together, the time must inevitably come when in some crisis, one person will have to declare God's word to one another. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. True biblical community. It's what Psalm 133 pictures for us and calls us to. It's what I want us to be at Ascension. One that is good. One that is pleasant. One that's accomplished only by grace. By the power that comes through the Gospel and through Jesus. And through the indwelling Spirit to love and to work in our lives. If we can be that kind of community, the world will take notice. Let's strive for it. Let's pray for it. Let's depend on grace for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this song that for generations your people have put upon their lips as a a cry, as a picture, as a longing for what you call your people to be in a broken, in a lonely world. Father, I recognize, we recognize that we need grace to do this. And so we pray for that grace. We pray for the Spirit's guidance. That even this morning, you would teach us the way that we should go. For your glory. For the good of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.